Dear friends, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the sevenfold spirit before the throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Amen. A word again from our sermon text, Jeremiah chapter 15. I will make you like a bronze wall to this people. They will fight against you, but they will not overcome you, because I am with you to save you and to rescue you, declares the Lord. I will rescue you from the hand of the wicked, and I will deliver you from the grasp of the ruthless. This is God's word. Dear friends, For those who have lost their faith in humanity, God has become like a mirage. You know what a mirage is, don't you? Out in the desert, maybe you've seen the cartoon or you've seen Lawrence of Arabia or you've seen this or that and the other thing, because we don't really have deserts around here. Maybe you've even traveled to these places where the light bends in just the right way and the thirsty will see maybe buildings, maybe trees with a pool of water in front of it, an oasis, and the closer they come, the farther away it gets or it disappears entirely. In the Holy Land, in ancient Israel, where Jeremiah spoke to God's people, in the south, this was the southern kingdom, the north, northern kingdom had been carried off, Um, as Jeremiah ministered to Jerusalem, what they were more familiar with was a deep ravine, um, which is kind of where we get the valley of the shadow of death, one of the deepest ravines and one of the most dangerous, where thieves and robbers would be. If you were very thirsty and famished, and you, you may have been with companions or not, you'd get to this place where you figured there was water. You've seen it bubbling over as a brook before, but because it's intermittent, because it breaks off during certain times of the year, it dries up, and what you expected is no longer there. It's either muddy or it's just entirely dry. So, Jeremiah said in our text this morning, that's what God was like to him. He didn't imagine anything. It wasn't illusory, but he he certainly wasn't what he expected. And I think that's true for a lot of people today, that God isn't what they expected. He's illusory, he's imagined, and he's not what they hoped for. If you don't mind, I'd like to tell you a little bit about the weeping philosopher before I tell you about the weeping prophet, because there's a connection, not in geography or history, but in thought. The weeping philosopher was known as Heraclitus, He was a pre-Socratic philosopher, very ancient. We don't know if he had any disciples, but people talked about him later on, like Aristotle and Plato. And he thought everything, the only thing that was constant was change, that everything always changes. And he answered the one big question, what is reality made of, by saying fire, because you look at fire, it's always changing. But it actually made him very sad to think that way because he figured there were very few virtuous people in the world very few good men, because we're always in a state of becoming, never in a state of being. 
That's another way to get at the question of God being a mirage. Because I don't think that's a difficult concept for us in this world, the mirage, that God, God would appear to be a mirage, not what we expected or what it seemed. The difficult part is bearing the cross. In a sense, the cross for us Christians is a state of always becoming and seemingly never being. That's what Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, almost 100 years before Heraclitus, the weeping philosopher, was saying to God in this prayer. He became weary of his cross. He needed to come up for air. Jeremiah pleaded to God, and in such strong pleading, he actually blamed God and accused him. Jeremiah, especially in in verse 18 here, seems to go a little too far. We'll take a look at that because it's important for us to see that the Christian life isn't what people expect it to be. And if Christians are saying this, they should stop. That as soon as you believe in Jesus, everything suddenly goes magically well for you. That all of a sudden, now you're going to get that new car you were saving for. That all of a sudden, you're not going to get sick or hurt or die. But at the same time, this cross becomes a blessing our whole life long. So we're going to try and wrap our our hearts and our minds around what Jeremiah says to us today so that we're not so desperate that we make God into a mirage. We see what the real mirage is. Because the Father who fashions our cross for us does it for a reason. To fortify your faith when it's famished and fatigued. I'll break that down in a couple parts. First, your cross is personally fashioned for your faith. And your cross will fortify your faith and does and has already. Jeremiah had a heavy cross. It was among the heaviest. Maybe Job comes close, but not in and among as many people. See, Jeremiah was guaranteed death threats. He was called into a ministry where he was supposed to condemn God's very own people for their idols, for being idol factories and clinging only to those fake gods that surrounded them in those, among those other peoples. Jeremiah was there to tell people what they didn't want to hear. And he packaged those hard truths just as God told him to in God's Word. And you know how the people reacted to that? They didn't like it. They were idolatrous. They were hard-hearted. They were stiff-necked. And the way that they treated Jeremiah was appalling was scary. They threatened him. They even faced him, faced off with him in the temple and almost killed him there like they killed a fellow prophet, Uriah. They stuck him in the stocks. They beat him. They dumped him in a muddy cistern. They threw him in the dungeon to rot. They did all of these things to Jeremiah for simply speaking the truth of God's word to them. It was a hard ministry. And it was no wonder Jeremiah had to come up for air. Jeremiah, who loved God's word so well, by his faith and by virtue of how faithful he was to his call, it didn't seem like Jeremiah should deserve this. And sometimes Jeremiah expresses that. It's not fair how these people treat me, God. I, he says, I, I ate your words. I, I devoured them. What does that mean? 
Well, we used to talk about inwardly digesting God's words a couple of hymnals ago and you know when we when we praise God for for the word that he gave us each Sunday, we enjoy God's words. We go after God's words like a dog to the bone. We love what God has to say. We don't add to it, we don't subtract from it. Confirmation students, we've talked about that already this year. We don't twist it or change it. We don't pervert God's words. We don't soften it when it comes out full throttle against us. And we also don't tread lightly with it when God gives his unrequited full and free forgiveness and grace. All of those things are very important when it comes to treating with God's word. And Jeremiah was faithful to the task. So Jeremiah leveled these accusations to God. First, it was like he had a wound that wouldn't heal. Have you ever had a gaping wound, a sore that just didn't seem to heal? And maybe that was your own fault. Sometimes you scratched it and it made it worse. That's what it was like. Only not a physical wound. Jeremiah felt this emotional, this, this wound of the heart and soul, this spiritual wound, because it didn't seem like God was ever quite taking him out of these ridiculous situations where the people wouldn't believe the word that God told Jeremiah to proclaim. And then he levels that accusation that God was like a mirage to him, an intermittent and unreliable stream. It didn't seem like faith was any kind of cushion when life got hard. It, it felt a lot more to Jeremiah like faith made him into a pincushion. And I bet a lot of us can relate. Maybe not to that degree, maybe not because anyone threw us in the dungeon for believing in Jesus or witnessing about the faith that you know will bring you to heaven one day because of the Jesus it's connected to. Maybe no one's dumped you in a muddy well. Maybe no one's put you in the stocks for those things. But there are situations where society, our friends, maybe even our family, this, this can cut very close to home, would downplay the Savior and would tempt us to doubt God or, or face his existence and wonder, well, maybe just God's just like a mirage and it's something I tell myself to feel good sometimes. Yeah, this, this is when things get real. And as it turns out, when I try to help God or work in His kingdom, what happens? I get mocked. When I knock on the door with some information about church, people slam it in my face or very politely usher me away. At least I, can't count on my, I can count on my hand the times that people actually received me with welcome or at least you know, wanted to hear more information. Or when I was fighting temptation that week it, and running the race that was set before me, it's not like a lot of people started jogging alongside me and saying, what's your secret? And the Christian cross to bear not only seems to make our old Adam fail in our sins, but sometimes the cross that God lays on us seems to, seems to put roadblocks and stumbling blocks for our new creation, our new man within us. How could God do that? And we find ourselves upset and annoyed by that so much that we look at the side and like Peter who warned Jesus not to talk about the cross, we find that we've actually laid it aside. And, and maybe in this state of becoming but not really being, not really sure where our faith is at and God doesn't seem to be much of a help. God, why don't you let our church grow like we thought it should? God, why won't you let my, my brother listen to me when I witness to him. God, why do you let 
my mother languish in the hospital under this operation? Why, why do you let her hurt so much? Why do you let my Christian friend face all these things? God, why are you like a mirage with all these gaping wounds on your own people? Why do you allow there to be a pastoral shortage? And when faith gets so real that it contends in our hearts so thoroughly and so thickly in the battle of temptation, what do we discover? Suddenly we're going to God more than we did when life was going well for us. Suddenly we're praying to God and pleading to him and and longing eagerly, desiring his sacrament and returning to the baptism that we know is bubbling over like a brook of God's words and promises for us. That we find, oh yeah, that's right. The cross actually helps my life of faith. Failure actually resuscitates what I once lost in the death and guilt of my sin because faith drives me and the cross with it to my Savior, Jesus Christ. See, God has fashioned your cross just for you. He knows how heavy to make it. He knows how broad your shoulders are. He knows how many splinters will cut you and keep you from success because He knows those are the things that are going to drive you to look to Him. Well, it worked for Jeremiah. In those first three or four verses, things weren't so great. But when the cross really got real for Jeremiah... What do you see in the last three verses? Some of the most blessed gospel that you could ever hope for. Because the Lord knows what you need in order to bear your personal cross. The Lord knew what Moses needed when it seemed like God really should abandon the people after they worshiped the golden calf and he had to plead for them, please stay with us, still be with us. And God said, I'll be with you. And Moses still said, please be with us. He knew what Elijah needed in his despondency under the broom tree, and he knew just what Jeremiah needed in these moments. So guess what, believer? God knows just what you need in the cross. Because it's there at those moments when life really gets real and you really wrestle with your faith and struggle with temptation and wonder if you should abandon it all and lay aside the cross for good that Jesus is most nearly and dearly with you. That Jesus desires to resurrect you and give you new life and hope for what's to come in His resurrection. True answers, real things that come for the temptation and trials and the death that stares us down all day long. Jesus says, life. I speak to you, life. And this is how He said it to Jeremiah. He said He would mobilize him for His personally fitted cross. He says, turn to me and I will turn you. I don't really like the translation, turn to me and I'll take you back. That's not exactly what he's saying. He's saying, turn to me and I will turn you to me. In other words, I actually will give you the gift of repentance. Peter said this in Acts chapter 5, that repentance is really a gift. It's part of the strange work of the Holy Spirit that he works the law in your heart and you feel the heat of your sin. You actually turn around from it. You run, you run dashing back from sin and saying, that wasn't right. That doesn't work for me, and it leads to death, but I want life, so I'm going to turn back to God. This is the first gift that God promises Jeremiah. And next, the Lord says he would restore Jeremiah literally as his mouthpiece. 
He renews his call to Jeremiah. He says, you're going to speak again. And they might not turn back to you, but you will keep speaking. You will continue to turn to me. And you, you might turn the hearts of the people, but they are not going to turn your heart. I call this the circle of influence. I try to tell this to our young people. Um, sometimes people come to me and say, is it all right to have unbelieving friends? Is it okay to have friends who don't have faith? And I say, well, I have this very complicated circle to show you, and I write the word influence on the bottom and the word influence on the top, and I make arrows pointing. Super complicated, right? Which arrow is stronger? Is it you being influenced? You might want to reconsider that friendship then. Are they influencing you into sin and unbelief and doubt? Well, maybe not. Maybe that shouldn't be a friend. Maybe that's not really a friendship. But what about that influence, that arrow that works on them? Is it a friendship where your faith is influencing that individual? Well, then treasure it. Hold on to that and see what God does with that friendship because that's special. And it's precisely because, because those people are near and dear to our hearts that we ought to be friends so we can take those opportunities and witness. That's what God said to Jeremiah when he says, they must turn to you, but you must not turn to them. And it doesn't matter if you're a young person or not. That's, that's good advice, and that's true in God. And finally, all this adds up that Jeremiah's cross would fortify him and make him into this isolated tower or wall of bronze, inaccessible to anyone who might threaten his faith. After enough cross, God promised the crown. The crown of glory in heaven, yes. So Jeremiah's going to have to wait for that. But already, even now, Christ would say the gates of hell cannot overcome the church. No one who assails you, believer, can get at your faith. Trust that. And know that, especially if you're doing the hard work of growing your faith in word and sacrament. If you're understanding and, and accessing the gifts God gives you in His gospel blessings, if you're going after the sin in your hearts with the law and then treasuring that gospel of renewal and forgiveness, no one can touch your faith either. And you know where this all comes from? It, it comes from the cross of burden of having faith in a world like this. That this cross actually informs your faith and fortifies your faith. How the cross shapes the faith of the one bearing it. And the Father knows that. He knows that it takes loss in your cross to force you back into the fight so that you can pick it up again and carry it. It's not the cross that saves. It's not like Jesus had some leftover cross for you to carry so you can help reconcile yourself with God or that now you can earn your favor with God as a piece of Jesus' cross. It's a different cross altogether. Jesus' cross is too comprehensive and forgiveness is too full and free for us to try and cooperate with him in order to save ourselves. But as ones who trust in Jesus, the cross of faith now is a cooperation with God's will. We do pick up a cross and we do say, yeah, this isn't going to be easy, but I trust in the one who saves and who saves to the end. Jeremiah wouldn't be like Heraclitus, always becoming but never being. There's a huge difference between the weeping philosopher and the weeping prophet. And there's a huge difference between the weeping person who has no hope and the weeping believer who has all there is to hope for, heaven. 
For the sufferings of the cross in this life are not worth comparing. Not one iota. Not if you're Job, not if you're Jeremiah, not if you're anyone in this room who trusts in Jesus. Not worth comparing to the glory that God is about to reveal to each of us. And so we sing with Simeon, Lord, now let our let us depart in peace. We mean that. We don't mean just going home to our homes. We also mean, okay, what if the Lord takes me this week? Well, I know I can depart in peace because things are settled here. And no matter what the world says, I'm fortified. Because of my cross, I've been made this wall of bronze and everything else is a crash dummy against it. Trust your Savior. Trust what He has to give you in your cross. I can't name all the crosses today. I don't probably know half of what you're struggling with. But it is a blessing every time believers lay their cross here and, and say, Pastor, help me. And it is a blessing every time the believer lays their cross of temptation and hardship and trial here and, and say, Jesus, help me. Because if there's one beautiful, glorious thing about this cross that God has laid on you, it's that this lesser cross will drive you to the greater cross the cross where your sins are left and banished and can't touch you for an eternity. This is the Lord who's with you and for you. In his name, amen.